0: The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. And away we go on a Wednesday afternoon. It's Fantasy NBA Today. A hoop ball presentation. Yes, we continue to have fantasy NBA every day, despite the lack of all other things NBA. That's it. That's the end of that sentence. That's the end of that thought. I'm Dan Baspris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S, with an at symbol in front of it if you want to give me a follow on Twitter. But at this point, I think it's just the handful of you that always stick through the off season because that's basically what we're in right now, is an early off season. Season ended on March the 11th this year, and normally the off season is half of June. July, August, September, and most of October, something like four months-ish, and that might be what we're looking at here. Just, just push it all across. So April, May, June, July, maybe the season starts back up in July, and we'll just... Have the off season now. So anyway, that's how we're treating it. Those of you that are joining us here for the first time in a little while, we're into our what you'd call a post-mortem portion of the campaign. Although, again, with the season not officially done, we can't really call it that, but we can sort of call it that. We're in the Northwest Division this week. Last week, we handled the Pacific Division. If you want to go through, you can listen to some of those. They will all be up for uh Ever. Yesterday we covered the Thunder, on Monday we covered the Portland Trailblazers, which leaves us Utah, Denver, and Minnesota the rest of this week. I picked a team at complete random today, and it's going to be the Utah Jazz of those remaining clubs. And I feel like these three teams actually now, you start to get into the weird just a little bit. A little bit. Not a ton. There's a lot of predictability with Utah, but there was one key subplot with the Jazz that kind of drove the entire story. Utah, by the way, is a team 41-23 at the time of league suspension, 18 games over five hundred. They were the four-seed in the Western Conference, a game up on both the Thunder and the Rockets, who sat at 40-25, and, and a game and a half back of the Nuggets for the three-seed. Jazz seemed pretty well locked into that three-through-six neighborhood. Three games back of the Clippers, and two-and-a-half games up on the Mavericks, but a lot of teams in between them, and unless something catastrophic happened. now admittedly they weren't playing all that well prior to the suspension of the season just five and five in their last 10 games same deal the Nuggets were suffering through a little post all-star break malaise if you want to call it that but frankly outside of the top teams in the West Lakers and the Clippers the Thunder were really the only Western Conference team that was ripping it up at the time the league was suspended anyway. Almost everybody else was either 4-6 and six or 5-5 five and five or 6-4. and four. But we're not here to talk about what the Jazz were doing at the time of the suspension. We aren't even really here to talk about what they were doing from a reality standpoint, although it's worth pointing out I had relatively high hopes for the Jazz this year. It seemed, on paper at least, that the Mike Conley addition was going to be a really good thing for them, to have a point guard they could go to for scoring which they didn't really have in Ricky Rubio. But Conley just, well, Plum didn't quite fit in with Utah, and there's, there's a bit of a fit issue to talk about, but really there's a bit of a you're not really the point guard playing point guard thing with Utah, and we saw with Rubio as well. It's a tough spot to put up fantasy value, and it's a tough adjustment for NBA players to make in that Utah offense. Whereas a guy like Boyan Bogdanovich was able to slot in pretty easily. And what Mike Conley really did with his appearance in Utah this year is, well, number one, he joined a team that had championship aspirations. So from that standpoint, it was probably a uh, a more enjoyable experience for him. But from an overall standpoint, uh, minutes were down, largely because of injury-related stuff. He missed a ton of time this year. Scoring way down, we're talking like, 10 years ago type levels for Conley. Assists, basically a career low if you wipe out his rookie season. Steals, first time in his career since his rookie year, where he only played 26 minutes a game, where his steals were under one per ball game. Three-pointers were about even, since you know everybody's taking those these days. And then shot just 40.5% from the field, which was down by what he was doing in Memphis two years ago when he only played 12 games and wasn't healthy. There's a thread here that you can follow, and it's health. He wasn't right. He missed a ton of time this year, and he was settling in with a new organization. And so when you roll all that together, it made for kind of a weird season at the point guard spot. Now, we have, on this show, been going through the players starting with the highest ranked and working our way down the chart, but I think we got to change that up in this one in particular, because... The, the top-ranked guys are the easy ones with Utah. Rudy Gobert, who finished at 35. Donovan Mitchell, who finished at 49. On a per-game basis, higher than that by totals, because the Jazz were, by most accounts, again, if you eliminate Mike Conley from the discussion, a pretty damn healthy roster, at least when you talk about the starting unit. Gobert played 62 games. Donovan Mitchell, 63. Boyan Bogdanovich, 63. Joe Ingles, part-time starter, 64. Royce O'Neal, 64, he saw significant time. The one guy on that team that played big minutes that missed a bunch of games was Conley. So let's actually work our way up the ledger for Utah, starting with Mike Conley. And the names we're going to talk about on today's podcast are Conley, O'Neal, Ingalls, Bogdanovich, Mitchell, Gobert, and we'll throw Jordan Clarkson into the mix since he was a midseason acquisition, and a good one, by the way for Utah. Not necessarily because he was going to do a whole lot of stuff from the fantasy standpoint, but just it provided a certain bench spark for the Jazz that they didn't really have, at least on the offensive side of the ball. So Mike Conley, who to his credit had started to show signs of life as we worked our way down the stretch. In fact, if you go to a more recent standpoint, Conley's last three weeks prior to the suspension, roughly 9-10 games or so, he averaged 15-5 and five with a steal, two and a half three three-pointers, and 45% from the field, and 88 at the free-throw line, which is always a good spot for him. He's a good foul shooter, 82% for his career, and 79.5% this year, but he hasn't been below 80 in any season since 2011. So there were signs of life. There was top 100 potential in the tank with Conley as the team really organizationally, once he got healthy here, they said, look, he's our guy. There was like a one game... Remember there was that one day where they claimed they were bringing him off the bench and then they didn't? And it was just like, okay, this is... They're going to force Conley into this. They're going to go... Whether this turns out to be you know, square peg in a round hole, they're going to try. You have to at least try, and he was finally healthy. So this is the, let's see if this works. And as a result, he started to put up some better numbers. Usage still wasn't all that high. He was never going to get anywhere near where he was in Memphis. But the results were starting to show themselves. So a couple points to make here on the Mike Conley front. Number one, he was, by all accounts, one of the huge old man misses this year. We didn't have many, but Conley was definitely a miss. You know, we're going to wear those when they happen. I love old guys that are getting drafted late, and he was an old guy getting drafted in the 50s, 60s range. And I figured, all right, well, even if he, all he's got to do is really stay healthy, and he should be able to eclipse that mark, and then, of course, he didn't stay healthy. Now, you can say, well, that's a little bit of bad luck. No, not really. You know, we're going to wear this one. He's born in 87, which doesn't make him a spring chicken. It means that he he is potentially prone, I don't say prone to injury, but susceptible to it. Only played 12 games, remember, a couple seasons back. He hasn't played over 70 games since 2013. So there's an issue there that may have been partially overlooked by yours truly as we figured, all right, well, you know, worst-case scenario is going to be around 69, 70 games, and he'll just sort of plod his way along to... Even if he's top 65, top 70 on a per game, by totals, he should be better than that. Well, that didn't play out, and then the per game stuff didn't play out because he never really got a chance to settle into a role on a team where his role wasn't going to be that substantial anyway. So this is the other side of the equation. But what can we take away from this? Well, number one, sometimes I think, and this is important because this this is a learning process thing for me as well as you guys where the argument I made with Chris Paul on yesterday's podcast, and I think this is a really good time to compare two key players. Chris Paul was probably our biggest hit among all of the old man guys we recommended. He said, take him in the 30s. He's falling into the 30s. This guy's got first round potential and he's falling into the 30s and all he's got to do is stay remotely healthy. And then he stayed completely healthy, which is the great overachievement of the year. That Mike Conley was on the other side, and we figured, all right, you know, this guy's upside is limited by Utah, but if he stays healthy, he's a safe, reliable point guard. Well, as it turns out, not that safe and reliable in a new situation and not healthy, so it was the ultimate underperformance. And both of those case studies, Chris Paul and Mike Conley illustrate kind of two things working together. Chris Paul, we got the call right. And then he overperformed even that call. My call, Mike Conley. We got the call wrong, and he underperformed a wrong call. If you take out the luck factor, meaning Chris Paul playing all but one game, come on, listen. We want to pat ourselves on the back, but we there's no way we saw that coming. I'd be lying to you guys if I said yeah I saw Chris Paul playing in every game except for one through the middle of March. I figured he would miss 10 to 15 games as a late first-round turn type of value and log himself in as a second-rounder on the season by totals. Well, then he played in every game and he was a first-rounder. For Mike Conley, I figured he would be in that 50 range with the drop-off in Utah, and he would play in 70 games, and by totals he'd be in that 50-ish range as well as a safe and easy pick. But here's... And then he missed a bunch of games, and so obviously dropped off the map. And then he also didn't perform on a per game basis for so many reasons, health being a big one. Here's the key handicapping standpoint from each of these two examples, and I want to put them head to head to show where we can learn a lesson. Lesson number one is understanding what a player's likely role is going to be with a new organization when you make these types of calls. With Chris Paul, there was an obvious correlation with him taking over the team. His personality being a big part of that. Chris Paul detested taking a side cart seat to the James Harden show in Houston. Absolutely detested being forced to take only three-pointers and abandon the part of his game that had made him so successful, particularly in tight situations, which is the mid-range. Especially now nobody knows how to no one no one knows what to what to do with somebody who's shooting a mid-range shot because nobody takes him anymore. Houston completely changed him mentally and from an actual game standpoint. And so Chris Paul got out of Houston and went to a team where the other point guards were a sixth man in Dennis Schroeder, who was really his only competition to ball handle. And Shea Gilgis Alexander, a promising second year player who wasn't about to take the ball away from, you know, 25th year player Chris Paul. So he was stepping into a spot where, as long as the team was mildly successful, he was going to be running the team. He was the floor general. Mike Conley was leaving a team where he was the floor general and going to an existing established order. This is Donovan Mitchell's backcourt. This is Rudy Gobert's frontcourt. This is Joe Ingles' wing or bench game. What do we need in Utah right now? Well, we need somebody to fill in the edges. We need Boyan Bogdanovich to hit three-pointers and make free throws at a high clip and score some points while being a slightly oversized small forward. We need a point guard that can be Well, frankly, a better outside shooter than Ricky Rubio. As it turns out, in looking the way... And I don't know that we can make an an overarching claim on this uh, with complete certainty, because we never really did get to see the Jazz with everybody healthy and settled in. But it's looking more and more like what Utah really needed was a big point guard who can defend and shoot the three. Almost like a 3-and-D like a Ron Harper, if you, if you were going to go back. now, I mean, three-pointers were a different thing back then. But like a triangle offense kind of point guard. They needed Derek Fisher from 20 years ago. Who I think they actually had 20 years ago. They needed... I don't know. Look around the NBA. How many teams have the point guard that just spaces the floor and shoots? Maybe Mike Conley wasn't the fit. He's a guy that... He needed the ball in his hands a little bit more. In any event, there's a a very key lesson to be learned here. And number one, this was not the season that Conley was going to end with. If he was fully healthy and the team was integrating for the entire season, you probably would have seen more of what we saw recently, which was that 15-5 type of stuff. I mean, he looked pretty good the last whatever you want to call it. What do we say, 10 games? And I think he was even better than that over his last five. Let's see if we can actually find that out. I think there's places where we can pull that up on the fly. How about last five games? 67. Top 70 was his rank. 16 points, 5.5 assists, 1.4 steals, 3 three-pointers. So, there was a little bit of upside with Conley that was starting to show itself. And had we played an entire season, it's quite conceivable that he would have been in that 70 range as opposed to 150 70 is still an underperformance from the 40 to 60 range where he was getting drafted but it's a hell of a lot better than where he ended up and that I think is what the lesson to be learned here with Chris Paul the per game stuff was actually fairly accurate it was the totals the health that really helped shape his giant season as opposed to just a good one and then with Mike Conley health played a role because he never got to settle in but this is when you're handicapping. You got, I know you guys love the, the, the minutia here because we are getting a bit, I've been called pedantic in the past. When you're handicapping this year, and even as you look towards next year, you need to say, okay, what would Mike Conley have been this season if not for some weird and extenuating circumstances that drove him farther down the chart? That's what we're talking about when I said, look, he underperformed. But he also was unlucky on top of that. By all accounts, he's going to be a member of the Utah Jazz again next year because he has a $34 million player option, and dude ain't getting $34 million on the open market. So presume Utah is going to be heavily unchanged season over season. I think Mike Conley's going to be an amazing draft day value next year. You guys are going to kill me for that one, aren't you? Dan, I can't. I cannot stomach putting this guy back on my roster. But that's the thing. There has to be a level of detachment for you guys on what happened in the recent past. Mike Conley could very easily go back to being 2014 Memphis edition Mike Conley, where he averaged 15 points and 5 assists on 44.5% from the field and a good free throw number. And 1.2 steals or something like that. This isn't a particularly deep Jazz team. So if he's healthy, he's playing. This is the absolute bottom. 40.5% shooting. Career low. 41 games. Second worst mark of his career. Scoring. Almost a career low. I mean, this was by all accounts as bad as it could possibly have gone. And not all of that is because he moved to Utah. Some of it, yes. But a lot of it was the injuries, the gelling with a new situation. I mean, that had a huge impact early in the year. It takes guys weeks, sometimes months, to fit in with a new team, especially when it's all set in place like it was for Conley. This is a guy that's probably going to get drafted Outside the top 75 next year, maybe? Could it be that late? It really could be. I'm all over it. Massive miss this year? I'll double down on that nonsense. Because if you just disconnect yourself from maybe having him on your team this season and being so hugely disappointed by him except for the final two weeks, the understanding has to be here that he's their guy. They don't really have a choice. They don't. Manuel Moutier is the of point guard on that team, guys. Moutier. So he's going to play. Conley's going to play 30 minutes a game next year. And he'll probably be a top 75 per game guy. And you're going to be able to get him as a mid to late round point guard that'll just... Quietly float along the way these old men are supposed to, even though he crapped himself this year. What he also did, as we transition to another name on this Utah club, and I know we just spent a long time on Mike Conley, but to me he's one of the more interesting stories of this fantasy season, he also kind of ruined Joe Ingles. who finished at number 143, but was far from that when Conley was around. And I don't have the numbers specifically in front of me, but suffice it to say that for the season, he averaged 10, 4, and 5, and a lot of that came in the 25 games that Conley had missed when he started and he was putting up numbers, and then he immediately disappeared. If Mike Conley is healthy and starting for Utah next year, Joe Ingles is not a fantasy value. Oh, well. There's just no other way to look at it. When Conley was back, I mean, just look at this last 10-game stretch where Conley played in 9 out of their last 10 games. Ingles was number 180. 8, 4, and 5. Percentages have not been very good for him. Not getting enough looks at the bucket. He's averaged 6 shots a game over that stretch. I know he's not a usage guy in general, but Jordan Clarkson also may be taking a little bit. So look, we'll dig a couple things. It won't be quite that bad for Ingles next year if indeed... Utah has any opening of usage, which, well, you piece it together. Clarkson is a free agent, so probably not going to be back, but who knows? He could return. I'm still not taking a risk on him. There's really no upside with Ingalls right now. That became Conley's role, even though they played two different positions on the floor. Jordan Clarkson, free agent. He was number 146 this year. Doesn't matter. His fantasy game doesn't translate. And now we'll talk about the slightly easier ones. Generally overrated, by the way. All of these guys. Boyan Bogdanovich, who finished at number 98, ever so gently easing inside the top 100 on a per game. Now, everybody got a totals bump because Utah was strikingly fortunate on health, aside from Conley. So Boyan was number 67 by totals because he'd only missed one game to this point in the year. But, listen... Totals are great. They're particularly good if it's a very good player. Like, to me, the fact that Gobert and Donovan Mitchell played in a lot of games was actually more valuable than the fact that Boyan Bogdanovich played in in that many games. Because you can usually find a guy on the waiver wire who's hanging around near the top 100. Having a top 100 guy on your team who plays in all 63 games, meh. I mean, he's a specialist at this point. You can find... Here's, here's what I'm talking about. It's, it's really a simple math equation. Look at the guys ranked near number 100 right now, just at this moment, and tell me how many of them were on and off of rosters this year. I can pick out more than a handful. Uh, Paul Millsap, on and off of rosters. He was ninety six. Crowder, 99. Kennard, 100. DiVincenzo, 101. PJ Tucker, 102. Thomas Bryant, 104. Terrence Ross, 105. Mark Gasol, 106. Daniel House, 107. Derek Rose, 108. Justin Holiday, 109. Colin Sexton, 110. You get it. Right, Sexton was generally on rosters. He especially he had played a lot better over the last two months, but you get it. Throw every. I, I was just reading names at that point. Think of the rest of the names that I just pulled out. That was what? Like about half of the players between 95 and 110. We're basically on and off of most 12-team rosters throughout this season. The reason for that is that these guys pop up every damn week. You can look at almost any two-week stretch of NBA basketball, which I realize is completely redundant. You can look at almost any two-week stretch of fantasy numbers and find a bunch of guys that are free agents. Who's the number 100 guy over the last... Oh, who the hell cares? Let's pull um, the final 10 games. Over the final 10 games before the season got shut down, the guys ranked around number 100. Uh, let's see. Number 96 was Justin Holiday, then Kendrick Nunn, Shabazz Napier. Harrison Barnes was 100. Um, let's see. Malik Beasley, 106. He got picked up. Mike Conley was 107. Delon Wright 108, Gary Harris 109, Dwayne Dedmon 110, Marcus Ole 112. Oh well, this is the each player's last 10 games. Sorry. So that's a little bit a little bit misleading. Regardless, the point is over any 2-3 week stretch, you can find probably 6 to 10 free agents that are ranked around the top 100. And that for an entire year is Boyan Bogdanovich this season. Why is that relevant? Well, that basically just means that if you rotate someone on and off of your roster every couple of weeks that's hanging around near the top 100, you just created a Boyan Bogdanovich matrix made up of 12 different guys, whatever that happens to be. Now, there's going to be different stat sets associated with those dudes, so that creates one level of confusion. With Boyan, you're getting 20 points and three three-pointers and some free-throw shooting. Consistently, that's the stats that you're getting ranked number 98 for the entire year. But if you just have the number 98-ranked guy for every single week for 20 weeks in a row, you're going to get the same totals value as we got from Boyan Bogdanovic. So, there was this, I think, weird thought, because he was averaging 20 points a game, that he was somehow a more valuable player than he was... He is one of those rare guys that does nothing. Zippo, Zilch, Squadaroo on defense. 0.6 combined defensive stats. That is, I believe, among players ranked basically inside the top 150. I believe that is the lowest. People like to call them stocks. I like to call them bleels. Blocks and steals combined. J.J. Redick was also at .6. He was number 131. That's it. Those are the lowest. So, by the way, kind of impressive that Bogdanovich made the top 100 despite doing nothing on the defensive side. Says a lot about the strength he had in scoring threes and free throw percent, but also tells you about how little he does in everything else. Would I rather have him than having to pick up and drop a guy every single week? Yeah, there's a a simplicity to it. Would I like to draft a guy like Boyon at 125 and have him be this type of value for a season? Yes. It takes pressure off your plate when you don't have to move a guy on and off your roster every week. But was he valuable? No, not really. He was, and I quote, fine. Meanwhile, top two guys for Utah were, as per usual... Uh, overdrafted now again, the totals element, the fact that they were both very durable this year, was a boon and for Donovan Mitchell, that seems to be a pattern at this point, although you know it 's tough to say for a player still as young as Donovan Mitchell he only in his third year, but he missed three games his first season five last year, and then he'd only missed one game this season that's to me that says durability he's been there. Gobert is a little bit of a tougher test case, and let's forget for a minute that there's been all these rumors swirling about those guys not getting along because of COVID-related stuff. Rudy has generally alternated very healthy and rather unhealthy seasons. Quite healthy, big-time knee sprain, quite healthy, ankle stuff, that kind of thing. It looked, by the way, like this year was going to be a repeat performance on the healthy side of the ledger. So that would have been a good sign for Rudy. Sort of a weird year for him in that his stats didn't change all that much, but his ranking did because of a bunch of very small things. You know, his field goal percent went up. He was around 70% this year. Really impressive. Free throw percent actually went down a tiny bit. Rebounding went up. Assists went down. Turnovers went up. Blocks came down. Scoring almost stayed the same. Ever so slightly down. Which put him on the season at number 35. And it's a weird it's a weird thing to to stick in my head cuz when you look at the numbers the difference between this year and last year seems fairly inconsequential. But last year he was number 17 on a per game basis. How does that happen? Is it really just the 0.3 blocks per game that did the trick? Or did the rest of the NBA actually get more valuable? Is that possible? Not really. Not really. He didn't get that much worse. Some of the NBA got a little bit better. But what you're seeing here is just a, how a, a handful of small tweaks can actually dramatically impact somebody's value. For instance, the fact that his rebounding went up by 0.8 per game didn't actually change his value all that much, but the fact that his blocks dropped by a third of a block per ball game that was actually a big deal for him because a lot of his value was tied up in that. The fact that he took 0.6 fewer shots, even though he made more of them, that actually kind of counterbalanced itself. You know, it's a weird weird thing to think about. His field goal percent impact was almost exactly the same last year as this year because even though he made a slightly lower clip, went up from 67% to 70% uh, between the two seasons, even though he made a slightly lower clip last year, the fact that he took almost a shot more per game evened that out. And looking again at some of the other stuff with Gobert, the 2.3 blocks per game last year was pivotal, where two blocks per game actually was a pretty big drop. These little things, they add up. What does that mean? What should we do with these guys? What should we do with Gobert and Donovan Mitchell? Well, Donovan Mitchell, I think, is going to be perennially overdrafted because he's the primary ball handler and he's the scorer on that team. And to his credit, he did his job admirably. Made two and a half three-pointers per game, hit a good clip of free throws, uh, 45% from the field, that's usable. Steals came down this year. I wonder if that's something that sticks or if that was the anomaly. If those come back up again, you could see him move back inside the top 40 on a per-game basis, but still, you're almost definitely going to see him drafted in the 20s, I would think at the latest, the early 30s every year, and to me, they're in a whole lot of room to go above that. And the only way he gets above that is playing in every single game. He was number 26 by totals this year because he missed one game the entire season. If he misses even two or three more, he falls back behind his ADP in totals quickly, mind you. So I probably won't end up with a ton of Donovan Mitchells, but, you know, it's not for dislike. It's just that guys that score get drafted too early if anything goes wrong with his health. I mean, one sprained ankle knocks him off his ADP immediately. Same deal with Rudy Gobert. If he doesn't stay fully healthy, he gets knocked off his ADP also. And I don't I don't think either of these guys take a hit in their draft position, even though their per-game values were well below their draft position this year. Gobert was drafted in the teens, and he finished at 35 on a per-game basis. Donovan Mitchell was drafted in the late 20s. He finished at 49 on a per-game basis. So if you're drafting a guy, and the only way they hit their ADP is playing in every game but one you leave yourself a razor-thin margin of error. It worked this year with these guys, but that is not a guarantee that it works for other guys, or even these guys, another time. You have to play the odds. And the odds are, most guys in the NBA are going to miss more than one or two games. Just the honest to goodness truth. Especially, I mean, look at this team. They were so healthy this year. That's crazy. Except Conley. So where would I take these guys next season? Well, I mean, you saw it with Gobert. I draft guys, I think, relatively close to where they are on a per-game basis. Because I don't, you know, with Donovan Mitchell, he does have the 10th category. I think you can safely say, yes, right now you're drafting him for durability. Gobert, I don't think you can make that claim. You're not drafting him for durability because it's been kind of hit or miss on that front. So with Donovan Mitchell, sure, you can give him a round bump because he tends to play in 76 games or more with Gobert I mean the fact that he had per game value of 35 that's close to where he should be going because if he misses any games that's where he ends up if he plays league average I should say in games that's where he ends up with Donovan Mitchell I think you can safely assume not safely assume but you can certainly give a little check mark in the box of will he play more then the league average number of games played, and the answer is probably yes. So that's a little bit of a bump. Will either of these guys ever hit their ADP on a per-game basis? I think the answer to that is no. And here we are again, looking at Mike Conley as the potential damn value on this team for next year. Absolutely absurd. All right, we'll wrap it up. That was the Utah Jazz. We'll break down either the Wolves or the Nuggets tomorrow. Don't know which. Probably the Wolves. Don't know which. I'm Dan Basper. So this is Fantasy NBA Today. Thanks for listening, everybody. This was Wednesday's edition at D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S on Twitter, HoopBallsHoop-Ball.com. He still got great stuff going on over there, by the way. Uh, the Hornets Breakdown is the most recent one and it's coming from a number of different angles, including Malik Monk and his weird drug-related suspension. Check out those articles over at HoopBall. Have a great Wednesday. We'll talk to you tomorrow when we talk about maybe the Wolves. <laughs> so long, everybody.